0: This episode is brought to you by WHU, the Otto Beisheim School of Management. WHU is reshaping the way students learn about business, management, finance, and entrepreneurship through its innovative programs and partnerships in Germany and across the globe. To learn more about this globally ranked university, visit whu.edu today. Hey folks, Garrett here. Welcome to today's show. In this episode, we introduce Marco Fitor, Veha'u alum and co-founder of the world's largest seller of hearing aids. His company, AudiBane, aka Hear.com, is redefining the way adults deal with hearing loss, providing aging populations access to the products and services they need. Since launching in 2011, Audibene now employs over 1,000 people and grosses well over €100 million euros in revenue each year. Hope you enjoy this episode. Coming to you from WHU, on the banks of the Rhine River, in beautiful Fallendar, Germany. This is the Best and Most Awesome Founder Podcast. A show about entrepreneurs, innovators, advisors, and educators, and the stories
1: that make them who they are today. My name is Marco. I sell hearing aids. Uh, So uh, we help people that have a hearing loss. It's typically a topic that pops up if you're 50 and above. It's a typical age-induced, let's say, issue. And yeah, we help people that are facing this topic.
0: Well, Marco, welcome. It's really great to have you here. I really appreciate you coming, as I know you have a very, very busy schedule. So maybe you can start by telling us a little bit about your experience becoming an entrepreneur and how you got into the hearing aid business.
1: I think it starts very early. I can remember when I was a small child, like five, six, seven years, I was impressed by neighbors that we had around the house that we lived in who were, let's say, entrepreneurs, who were, um, yeah, businessmen with their own companies. And I really was fascinated about that. They were doing a lot, they were traveling, had nice cars, and I said, oh, it's actually a pretty interesting, let's say, lifestyle. Well, my parents were classical employed people, my mother a teacher, so very, let's say, more traditional. And I was fascinated by you know, the lifestyle that these entrepreneurs around me had. So that was the very early kind of foundation. Then I was participating in a school project when I was in high school, in, in 12th grade. We participated in a project where we actually started our own company. And it was, you could call it a marketing agency that we built, helping small and medium-sized companies in in my hometown to get online. Uh, we were focusing mainly on website building and so on. It was in the late 90s, so really mm-hmm. in the early days of the internet. Uh, I was 17, 18 back then. And that was really an entrepreneurial experience and I liked it a lot. Uh, when the teacher came up with a proposal that, he was looking for people interested in taking part in that. I immediately thought, oh, sounds interesting, let's do it. And so that was my real first entrepreneurial experience at the age of of 17. It was pretty successful, of course, on a small scale, but I liked it. The next step was university. It was uh, here in Falunberg at WHU. How did I get here? Because I I, I looked for a university that is, let's say, very entrepreneurially oriented, uh, and already back then, Whu had a reputation for being a business school where you don't learn too much of theory, but also kind of practical application and how to how to develop companies, and so that kind of captured my interest. So I went here, liked it, studied here, liked my time uh, here very much, um, and so also during these four years of studies, kind of, I was exposed to entrepreneurial topics. When I graduated in 2004, it was not really the time of starting young companies. Uh, It was um, not really a topic in Germany back then. Um, So I started first as a consultant. um, But this is a great job. But then two friends approached me with the idea to start a company, a software solution, web based, we would call it a cloud based software solution. Mm Yes, I said, oh, I be a consultant for all my life. This is a unique opportunity. I'll just do it. Yeah. Uh, and that was in 2005. And so, and since then I'm, yeah, entrepreneurial uh, and yeah, have been first focusing on that project. Later on, we sold the license for this company to our, uh, for this software, to our largest um, customer, DuPont. Um, but I didn't want to end up in the fifth level of hierarchy at DuPont being <laughs> responsible for internal software solutions um so i wondered what are uh, new topics and i met an old friend from university uh, we always stayed in touch met let's say every six months for a dinner or so and on one of these occasions on the way there my father called me not via phone but via skype and it was summer of 2011 he was 69 back then and i arrived at the dinner set to paul my old friend Oh, that's funny. My father's now Skyping with me. <laughs> These old people in the internet, that has a lot of potential. Uh, they call it the silver surface because they typically have gray hair. And that was kind of the starting point of a very structured discussion around uh, where are opportunities, especially um, given that now uh, people above 50 are also massively online. And it's not only a topic for young people anymore. Um, that they use the internet. No, it's really across all age groups and especially for the silver surface, there's not so much dedicated offers out there. And -hmm. then we wondered which topics are relevant for them and Mm -hmm. as hearing loss is something that every third person above 50 is affected by, uh, it's obviously also a topic that you can think about whether there are digital solutions that are maybe a little bit superior to what is out there in the market uh, today or
0: so what made you decide to tackle the challenge of hearing loss? Were you interested in that particular challenge, or were you more focused on serving the increasingly aging populations across the globe?
1: Yeah, I mean, we start really thinking in a very structured way. What are topics that people above 50 are need? Right? What are they facing? What are their interests? What is important for them? And, and we had a couple of topics, let's say, on the list, and we looked deeper into them. and one of them was uh, i said the issue of hearing loss that comes up in most cases when you're above 50. there are other other forms of hearing loss that you already have as a child or so but that it is a massive problem it starts when people get yeah older 50 55 and above Mm -hmm. we also looked at other topics but in the end uh, we always kind of came back to the hearing loss issue um, where we saw that the existing let's say distribution structures are not customer oriented, that they are also not efficient. So there's a lot of inefficiency in the system and at the same time, people have a lot of prejudices and the the existing distribution infrastructure, the retailers were not capable of reducing and and taking away these prejudices. The solutions that are out there are great. The, the, The products, the hearing aids are great devices, super pieces of technology. Uh, helping people, uh, people really, but people don't know. People believe it's different. People believe they're big, brown. They don't work, and, and the industry has not made a good job in, in in educating people that there is actually a good solution and uh, that that there is something that can help them. Yeah? And, and I think that is our that's the opportunity that we saw to do so and to take away these these uh, these these prejudices and the and the fears and the. Yeah, this negative perception and and make it a positive one and and inform people about, yeah, that there is a solution that's actually much better than what they believe.
0: It's my understanding that hearing devices are rather high price point customized products, something you don't see too often in e-commerce environments. With the personalization required to serve these types of customers, did you see this as a hurdle that you would have to overcome? Yeah,
1: I think that was clear to us from the first moment that a pure e-commerce approach for hearing aids is not appropriate. It's a very personal product that goes into your ear. Hearing loss is very individual. There are no two persons who have the same hearing loss. So it needs individual adaptation and also the selection process, uh, which device is the best for you and so on, is a very personal topic. And even the whole consultation process, uh, what's your issue and so on, and should I do something, is some, something very personal. And you can't just build a web shop where you yeah. click and do an online checkout, pay with credit card, and then you No, it, it requires much more personal interaction. But still you can leverage this personal interaction with technology It doesn't have to be you go into a shop, you take a two hours appointment there Do tons of testing with you before they actually start talking to you because they believe they first need to do the testing before they can explain to you, but you have first questions before you're open. Uh, to take these tests and so on. So kind of just inversing the process already helps in making this more accessible. So there is no need to start with the shop and the measurement and so on. Um, and that that's our approach. So it's, it's not a pure, uh, you know, not a simple web solution, but it's a technology enabled process that is more appealing to the customer. Um, and, and yeah, thus kind of enables us to convince people, uh, to, in the end, buy a product um, where people otherwise probably would have not acted at all if we were not around.
0: It seems that you and your team tackled a pretty unique challenge for an online marketplace environment. Can you walk us through the general value proposition and customer journey Audi Audibana provides?
1: Yes, sir. We sell young mm-hmm. to end consumers, so it's a B2C business. Mm-hmm. We benefit from the f- fact that every third person above 50 is affected suffering from hearing loss and at the same time that three quarters of people above 55 nowadays are online and we use a di- to a large extent a digitized process um, we start with online marketing only so all our marketing is done online we then continue with a consultation via phone via whatsapp mm-hmm. via video via our audi Biene app so we have our own app solution you can actually allow for um, kind of communication at the time that the customer wants to communicate so kind of you can don't have to be at the same point of time at the same location or at the same time on the phone so technology enabled communication and in the end uh, we sell the hearing aid supported via local audiologists so the traditional retail shops mm-hmm. where we send the customer and the hearing aid and then the local audiologist performs all these tests that are required and does the fitting of the hearing aid according to the measured hearing loss. So that's kind of the individual programming of the device that's done locally, but even also then again after uh, we take over the after sales, let's say consultation, explaining things and so on. So it's a mixed process out of online components phone consultations, and the physical visit at a local shop, which is our partner provider.
0: Does that mean Audi Bene has multiple business development fronts where you not only have to acquire the customer, but also develop relationships with partner audiologists?
1: That's what makes our business for me, uh, also now seven years in, fascinating because we have these different components. We have the pure online component, which is the marketing part. We have that technology supported consultation part, and we have the say b2b part where we interact with our local partners which are very stable relationships because they learn now realize that we bring additional customers incremental users that otherwise would not have acted so really actually we make the pie bigger um Mm -hmm. by uh, attracting customers who otherwise would not have become customers and does that in
0: essence, then leverage those local audiologists into kind of becoming ambassadors for you guys or, or sales channels almost, or marketing channels?
1: No, not as a marketing channel. That's our job to, 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 let's say, recruit these these customers in channels that the local audiologists, typically they are operations with 5 to 15 employees. They They can't be really visible online. They have a website, but they can't do active online marketing. That's our job. But we partner when it comes to really supplying the product, fitting it, measuring and so on. And that we actually have a, it's really a win-win situation. We have incremental customers where the local partner receives a share in the basket that we in the end then receive from the, from the consumer. So it's good for him. It's incremental business. He has free capacities and we can wire our partners to make sure that the fitting is done individually on on, a high quality level.
0: Now, it's my understanding that you have quite a global reach. Can you tell us about Audi Bena's footprint and what markets you're operating in?
1: That was actually also um, a fact that fascinated us from the beginning, because we knew that this is not an issue and a topic that's limited to one country only. But it's a global phenomenon. Every third person above 50 has a hearing loss. Wow. And the prejudices are globally more or less the same. So from day one, it was clear that this will be one day, a very, has the potential to be a global um, topic, global company as well then. Uh, And that's actually what we do. So we went uh, into our first foreign market, which was the Netherlands, Mm -hmm. close by, after 12 months of operation. And then another year later to Switzerland and Malaysia. So the Mm -hmm. more developing market in Asia, because we wanted to show It's nothing that is limited to Europe or Western markets only but it also works with slight adaptations in markets like Malaysia which is very far away um, to really prove that this concept of convincing people is, is really has global potential so and since then now things develop further we then went into the US in 2015 Canada France to Korea to India Um, So this is now the setup, Hong Kong, Singapore, Uh, so 11 markets in total that we are active in.
0: I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the business itself from our discussion offline. You have some pretty unique ways of running a data-driven business. Can you share a little bit about your approach to management?
1: Yeah. And there's a very simple phrase I learned at university. What gets measured gets done. So I'm a, I'm a fan of that approach. Yeah? because Only if you have visibility uh, on developments, on trends, on performance, uh, then you can uh, draw your conclusions and you can manage and, and develop um, the company in the right direction. So it's it's important for everybody in the organization to have transparency, to know where we are, to know how we perform. Yeah? So that's with net promoter Score. We were very early in introducing net promoter score evaluation. So asking our customers whether they would recommend us or not uh, and, and, and tracking the development by country. Then you can even track it by partner by sales consultant. Uh, so uh, on all levels, you can aggregate it, you can do it very granular. Great number, very simple number. It's just one number. <laughs> uh, so yeah, uh, it's data to a certain degree, but it's simple. It can be understood by everybody. Yeah? Also, and I think that, that is uh, something very important. Yeah? Numbers need to be... People need to be able to understand them yeah? because it doesn't make sense to build... Comp- complex uh, reporting tools with hundreds of kpis yeah on the one hand yeah transparency is important but it needs to be understandable it needs to be digestible uh, for people across the entire organization Uh, and so we measure a lot we create a lot of transparency we have a lot of let's say rankings of performance of teams of sales consultants of partners um, Different products, how they perform on the ear of the customer, um, and we do this. We do a similar approach also for qualitative, um, let's say, data, because not every information is necessarily a number. Uh, so I have also qualitative goals that are more difficult, kind of, to, even impossible to put into a number. But then you just define your target there, and again, it's important to, to measure that. Uh, We work with uh, OKRs, so quarterly objectives and key results that we want to achieve as an entire company But we then break it down into countries and functions Uh, each country and each function develops uh, quarterly goals and objectives and then once the quarter is over we review how did we perform and we assess how much progress did we make on these topics that we defined and even there you can say even if it's a qualitative goal you can say have we achieved it to 20%, 50, 70, 80, whatever. Uh, So so you can actually build a bridge to also measure progress on qualitative topics. And these two parts together is a a very important basis to steer the development of a company. and And I'm a big fan of that.
0: So something I noticed when I was visiting your office in Berlin last year, were the flat screens on the walls in almost every room sharing sales and service data across the entire organization. Can you talk a little about the underpinnings of this deep level of transparency?
1: It goes back, actually, along the lines of what I already said. People need to know, and people across the organization need to know. Every single person should be aware of how he or she is actually performing in an absolute dimension, but also relative to, to peers, to colleagues, and so on. So it's, it's I think fundamental to have this transparency being there across the entire organization on standardized standardized format formats, let's say. So um, we need to measure productivity or whatever customer satisfaction in the same way in each office. It can't be that we measure customer satisfaction in India differently than in the US. So you need to define some standards. But then it's important uh, to, to make people aware where we are, um, yeah, and just show them. And also, there's nothing to hide. Information is not a secret. I, I really don't like this notion of information and data is a is something that we need to hide. That the way there is a danger if somebody knows or whatever. No, I, I completely disagree with this approach. That you need to be cautious and, and hide data We have a very big transparency on, on also on on, on on financial let's say results we shared with a large group of people so that they are aware where we are where we stand where we need to improve where we made progress um, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm completely open there and don't see a downside or risk uh, from from being transparent and from sharing information on on, on all kinds of dimensions
0: The way you describe managing your business doesn't sound like a traditional growth stage startup as much as it does a mature corporate enterprise.
1: Several thoughts around that. I would (laughs) say if you look at, let's say, successful growth companies, startup companies, whatever, then you will find that they have structured operations, that they do have transparency, that they do have um, robust processes. So I would say if if you de-average and look at the more successful ones, then you probably will see... Robust processes, in most cases. So therefore, I wouldn't say that we are an absolute exception here. I would say it's a a characteristic of successful companies, and I would even say prerequisite. You only can be really successful if you have robust processes, at least for many topics. We're not a super creative business at the same time. We're not inventing kind of the next Google. No, so let's be kind of (laughs) realistic there. Um, But indeed, the point is. We like to manage, or let's say, we, we, we want to make sure, don't like the word manage too much, we want to make sure that the whole organization, that everybody in the company is working according to a set of principles. Now we, we call them the Audi Bene guiding principles, eight, eight, eight of them, they are identical since five years, five years ago, we wrote them down, they basically don't change, and we teach them to each new hire, I do it myself, uh, making sure that we all kind of work on these on these same, um, yeah, perceptions of how we want to work together, and, and one thing is responsibility. Everybody is responsible for results. That's for example super important. Yeah, and at the same time, you know, and could, could go on with the other ones. At the same time, it's super important that we are aware that we need to yeah be uh, robust. Yeah? And, and create. Outcome quality. We have customers who expect a good service. So they're buying sometimes, sometimes expensive products. They also cheaper solutions doesn't mean that they have to be super expensive. Yeah, but they're buying something. They spend money, um, and they expect a certain quality of for it. Uh, we are selling medtech here. Uh, it's medical devices in the end. Um, so we have a certain responsibility also uh, to make sure that the quality of our work meets certain standards. Uh, and that also that requires us to make sure that our processes internally have a certain level of maturity and a certain level of standard. And so uh, we, we need to be like this, but we also want to be like this. And it's prerequisite if you want to grow and at the same time become more efficient. And that's something that I'm actually pretty let's say happy but even maybe a little bit prouder about is that we were able on the one hand, to grow the company, to grow top line revenue, find more, convince more customers. But at the same time, we became significantly more efficient uh, and and we continue to grow by 50% per year. And at the same time, we are profitable. Uh, And that is a combination that is, I don't know, I didn't make any research on it, but my feeling is that this combination of 50% growth per year while being profitable and getting more profitable over time That is rather unique and that's something we are super happy about.
0: I'm sure I think your growth trajectory alone is is quite unique. It's something to be quite happy about.
1: Yeah, but but you have a lot of companies who, let's say, either grow Mm -hmm. and others. Yeah, grow a little bit, Mm -hmm. but become more profitable Mm -hmm. or profitable at all, which is also an entrepreneurial achievement. Mm -hmm. For us, the challenge is to do both at the same time. And that's also what kind of is a certain stretch for the organization mm-hmm. to do both. And it's a little bit ambiguous also, yeah. and, and handling ambiguity is a big, big topic. Yeah? Um, and so ah, we, we want to grow, but also we want to become more efficient. Oh, mm-hmm. what? No, what? No, both at the same mm-hmm. time. Right.
0: Now, much like a long-established company, it seems you operate a very disciplined and data-driven organization. But it's my understanding that you have quite a unique corporate structure. Maybe yeah, you can pick up I, on we that.
1: We don't have too much of structure, yeah. uh, because structure makes, I believe, companies slow. Yeah. Um, and we, we face a lot of change. Uh, we, we have this complex process of online consultation, fitting with the partners, and we have a underlying technology layer. Uh, We are currently developing our own hearing aid, specifically uh, targeted towards younger customers with milder forms of hearing loss. Um, So, and in all these dimensions, we have a lot of change and we want to be the drivers of innovation. Um, So there is constant change in what we do. And at the same time we grow and at the same time we want to become more efficient. So that requires us to constantly adapt, to constantly incorporate feedback that we receive from the market, from customers, from partners and so on. So whenever we become too much structural in some way, I believe there is a risk that this kind of ability to change and to adapt is reduced and limited. So therefore, not too much of a structure. We still have no org chart we have over a thousand people. There's no written structure. There are no written reporting lines. Of course, you need some structure in a company with more than a thousand people. It's clear, I'm not crazy, but you can limit it to an absolute minimum and make sure that people feel responsible, responsible for results in their specific role, in their specific area. Uh, you don't need hierarchy for this. Uh, and, and it sounds, again, ambiguous on the one hand, uh, no structure, but then there is structure. No, but it goes. It works at the same time to be flexible, agile, and creative, not looking on t- in hierarchy, but on the other end, of course, making sure that the outcome quality, what we deliver to our customers, has a quality standard that is, that is good.
0: I find it really interesting that in some ways you focused heavily on structure, and in others, you've tried to keep it more loose and adaptable. How did you decide in what areas to be more disciplined and where to be more flexible? Did you do this on instinct?
1: It is to a certain degree intuition, because you can't learn that somewhere. It's also learning by doing. We see, we do something, then we monitor the result. Is it good or is it bad? If it's not so good, then we kind of adapt again. Um, Yeah, it has to do with just trying things with with working on them. Uh, But this point of of making sure that we are agile, that we are flexible, that we stay innovative, that we stay also hungry. uh, We don't get complacent uh, um, is super, super important. And we focus a lot on hiring people who share this view, who don't look for structure, who don't kind of tell us that we need more structure. But who are fine and happy with in uh, with working in such a more flexible environment, which is a little bit more stressful for you as a person because you always need to kind of uh, there is no structure you can hold on to. But uh, people actually like it because they really all feel as entrepreneurs. They all can they have all have impact on results. There isn't no no hierarchy kind of limiting their, their, their impact and so on um, with, with interns having so much of a tremendous impact on our business. Nobody knew they were interns. Internally, we don't have titles, so we don't have email footers in, in, in internal email communication. And um, because we want to have, we want to make sure that everybody is treated kind of equally. Um, of course, people have different backgrounds, experience, whatever. Of course, the actual input is, is different or, or the impact is different, uh, but it should not be due to titles or whatever that this comes and um, yeah, so it's 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 the people who make it kind of happen and we make sure we try to make sure we pay attention to getting the right people on board who share this view and then it's kind of it's a no-brainer to decide how much structure do we need and of course it's a constant evolution and uh, for example if you look at our finance processes that how we do invoicing how we collect uh, receivables and so on of course you need stable and robust processes for this but when we look at marketing how we create innovation and so on uh, to deliver even more appealing messages to our customers uh, then there's all about creativity and no structure so there's also no, no single answer across the organization uh, in certain areas you need more and other areas you need less
0: I'm really curious about the implications of this for a startup founder. Because, from my experience, the less organizational structure a company has, the greater the burden is on the leadership to manage people effectively. Do you find this lack of hierarchy and reporting lines to have an impact on your day to day management of the company?
1: I believe that typically management levels and reporting lines create work mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that doesn't have any impact. It's just waste that is created Uh, and um so no i I don't see that there is a that that's of course you have more responsibility but everybody has more responsibility there's also no kind of superior person you can uh, kind of rely on just passing on a decision need to that person and then you don't have to decide but that person will take the decision for no no you have to decide yourself and that places on, on some people a certain burden, a certain also stress level they have to decide on their own. But there are many people who actually like this a lot. And that's the reason why they stay with us, why they why they appreciate working in our team, because they have this this possibility to make decisions on their own and not needing clearance or whatever from any type of management level. Um, so again, it's a question of having the right people on board who like that challenge and who, who are fine with it and appreciate it.
0: Right. Right. It I doesn't just...
1: work with people who want structure, who need structure, and we are very open about it uh, when, when we hire people that they won't find this. They also won't find signals of power or hierarchy or whatever. Everybody has the same desk. There is no separate office for anybody in the entire organization. It's very clear. So people who come from outside with more experience might be used to own office. You don't get that. You don't get your assist, an assistant with two team assistants in the entire organization.
0: You mentioned offline that Audi Banner recently achieved a really significant milestone. Can you share a little bit about your company's current status and growth trajectory?
1: Yeah, I mean, let's start with the customer. We, we have uh, net promoter scores that are tremendous. Uh, 60% of our customers are net promoters. Uh, so that's great. Yeah, that is a super positive signal that what we're doing is good and that customers appreciate it. That translates into revenue. Yeah, This calendar will be something like 180 million euros in revenue. Uh, we have 4,000 local shops partnering with us. It's the biggest network in audiology ever. Yeah? Um, they work with us on a day-to-day basis. They are owner managed. So they every day again decide that they want to work with us and that this corporation creates a win-win for them as well, for everybody then. So this is nice, good revenue, very stable, very good relationships with 4,000 shops globally. We're a team of, I said, over a thousand people. That's great. And we continue to grow 50% this year. I don't see any real limit to this. We always have kind of a long planning horizon. We set pretty aggressive and ambitious goals where, if you say them right now, people think you're crazy, but then you, we call it begin with the end in mind, then you deduct from well, where, where do we want to be in five years, you know where you need to be in two and a half years, then you know where do you need to be next year, then you know what you need to do for the next six months, for the next six weeks, and kind of this big thing kind of becomes digestible in smaller pieces. How do you get an elephant in pieces? Uh, So if you want to become an elephant, you start with building together little pieces and and, then working on them. And then if you put them together, something big is is developing. And so forward-looking, we see uh, still a lot of potential finding more customers. Uh, 500 million people in the world have a hearing loss. 50 of them have have a hearing aid. So there's 450 million people out there we can still have um put in numbers so huh? we when we started audibene in 2012 we said we will hit 100 million revenue in 2017. we got there now we just added a zero <laughs> to that number or again a five to six years planning horizon let's see but i'm sure we will get in the range of it um, we want to make sure that we continue to be super well appreciated by our customers and by our partners, it's super important. And we want to make sure that we continue to leverage technology during the entire process from the first touch point to in the end, after sales services, um, like with our own device. Um, So there's a ton of topics that we're working on, uh, but it's super fascinating.
0: I imagine that many of the entrepreneurs listening are struggling to understand how to move from idea to market to growth, and all of the important steps in between. I believe Adweek Bana has some interesting methods of capitalization that help propel this meteoric rise of yours. Would you mind sharing a little of that story?
1: Yeah. I mean, we had a very pragmatic approach to it. We had this idea. We tested it a lot with interviews, um, uh, interviewing consumers, interviewing audiologists. So we just sat down in the car, drove around, and got... A positive feeling that there is potential with for our idea. So we finance that out of our own pockets from let's say from what we had saved. Uh, We hired the first people, we started building the website and so on, all self financed Then we realized okay it's continuing to be good, people like what we do, well we will need some funding. So we got in some some business angels um, from our network, many of them studied here at VAU uh, had also started own companies um, it was a great setup of angels then again question was we wanted to grow we wanted to go abroad we didn't want to do it in a slow way but uh, get in external funding to finance these expansion plans so we got into venture capital funds great collaboration with them indeed we hit our numbers or our projections they were happy um, and then we were approached in 2014. So we were still pretty young back then by EQT, a Swedish private equity fund backed by the Wallenberg family. It's a very long term horizon, very industrial in, in their thinking, very deep knowledge of the topics they work in. They have a long traction of being healthcare investors and they talk with us whether we would be interested in joining them. It just had or were in the process of acquiring the um, audiology division of Siemens, um, and there is of course collaboration potential with the manufacturer. So being a little bit closer to a manufacturer makes sense. We had it already on our agenda that either private equity could be a long-term kind of structure that we would be happy with, and/or and/or being closer to a manufacturer we thought makes sense. This was like perfect coincidence EQT reaching out to us, then we met with them, we had discussions and we were fascinated how much they are similar in the way they and we think about the future of this industry uh, and where our debate should be positioned what our role is, so in the end we agreed with them and then also with our co-shareholders that this would be a very interesting topic, so actually EQT purchased the shares of our VCs and, and business angels, and now EQT is our main investor. And we're super happy with them.
0: You mentioned that your partners at EQT have the same vision as your leadership team at Audi Bainhead. So what is that vision, and what do you see the future of the hearing loss industry to be?
1: The future of this industry is much more colorful than the past. It's much, they're much more differences let's say differentiated approaches different customer segments different price points uh, it won't be the standard th- th- there will still be a let's say standard product sale, one off. Huh? you sell a hearing aid to a consumer then he goes home uses it for the next five or six years and maybe in six years he buys a new one um, this is currently the majority of the market there will be other forms of Delivery Uh, there will be time-based consumption. uh, So you pay per use There will be leasing models. There will be um, Even more digitized ways of delivery uh, where you might not go to a shop, but have a kind of more remote uh, Fine-tuning so this already exists today and and people like it uh, Customers like it. also audiologists like it because it makes their own work much more efficient Um, there will be more value oriented segments with cheaper products. There will be super high end segments with super powerful instruments. Um, so it will become a little bit more complex. And that is, of course, a challenge also for the traditional audiologist uh, who, in these smaller structures, needs to now adapt to all this change happening. There, all the technology, digital connections with phones, with other pieces of equipment. This is new over the past two, three years um and so this is also where we come in uh, by supporting on the one hand partners well kind of getting in touch and getting used to this more complex um future but also for us it's a perfect opportunity to make sure that we are at the forefront of innovation that we that we kind of use the change that is happening here uh, to make the best out of it for the consumer and make sure that we deliver um, user-oriented solutions for all these different segments of the market. And much of it has to do with technology. Uh, also there, us being a digital player from day one yeah, with a largely digitized process. Um, I think we're in a pretty good position to leverage technology here further and to be the users of this technology.
0: Do you see any risks from new technologies coming out that will disrupt your industry? And are there any risks associated with new hearing loss interventions like cochlear implants, stem cell therapies, etc?
1: First point, I never think in risks. Mm-hmm. I know the Work word then. risk yeah. exists, <laughs> but it's, a, it's not in my active vocabulary. Um, it's not a dimension that I think in. Yes, there will be some change. Yeah, there is this. I mean, cochlear implants are around for 10 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are. It's a super invasive uh, surgery that is needed. You can decide whether you want to do it or not. It's super expensive. Will this replace hearing aids as a mass topic? I don't believe. There are other things that you can think about uh, the the ear cells uh, uh, kind of restoring themselves again, whatever, not over the next 10 to 20 years. On the other hand, I mean, you can use hearing aids as sound amplifiers in a way you want to just focus on, let's say, our conversation here. And if it would be louder around us, if we were sitting in a cafe, the hearing aid helps us to focus on our conversation because it reduces the background noise level. So actually, also people without a hearing loss do benefit from a hearing aid uh, in many, let's say, noise situations. Background noise is something that is very, reg- very common, uh, and where a lot of people need to then concentrate, and it, 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 it's tiring and, and so on. So, why not use, let's say, these pieces of technology? Maybe we don't call them hearing aids anymore um, for sit- for situations like like these. Um, so there are also new applications that to do- today are not not there, and there are, as said, the 450 million people globally. Still suffering from hearing loss, not having a solution. Um, well, they are there, <laughs> and the problem doesn't go away. So, so there is big potential.
0: Sounds like you have a core market that's obviously continuing to grow, and potentially some some yeah. secondary, tertiary markets that yes. hasn't even been explored. Uh, look, yet. Look,
1: look, look, to Africa, mm-hmm. China, and so on. All markets that are heavily underpenetrated. Nobody is hearing aid there. A lot of people suffer, and it's it's it really I mean not being able to hear is something that is impacting your quality of life significantly. And if you see the hundreds of million people that don't have access to that technology kind of uh, compensating for this hearing loss, they really suffer, they really have an issue. And serving them is a big potential.
0: Now, you just mentioned Africa, a place where I spent many years working with the proverbial bottom of the pyramid populations. As the products you sell seem to be somewhat cost-prohibitive for the billions and billions of lower-income people across the globe, are there any technologies out there that can be cost-effective enough to serve this massive potential market?
1: I mean, that is today still the major issue, why uh, kind of um, many countries' uh, penetration rates are so low, because people just can't afford. I believe that with the uh, kind of ongoing um digitization of this entire uh, product and the way how devices are fitted and so on this makes it easier to have a more efficient kind of distribution approach in in such markets where there is also no existing infrastructure in africa there are just no audiologists it's also completely unrealistic to assume that you can train hundreds thousands of audiologists uh, that then can spread out and, and, and support people. Uh, so maybe technology here could be a, a lever to make sure that people also in, in, in areas like, like Africa uh, can have access to, to hearing care.
0: I'd like to bring the conversation back here to Vehau and the members of the student body that might be interested in following in your footsteps as a successful entrepreneur. Do you have any wisdom or suggestions for these young people considering the startup life as a career path?
1: I think one, one important point is this, this notion of risk. I, I often run into people who think a lot in what if, in risks. And I believe this is wrong. You should not think in risks, especially if you're young. Because you can always reconsider a decision. Even if you... We, we try to really motivate the entire team to always go for risky decisions, to take risks actively because then you can learn either it works then you have made an improvement or you learn oh, it doesn't work uh, it's, it's 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 worth worse than before and if you f- if this is the result then you oh, okay then you realize pretty pretty soon that this was not the right decision but then you can adapt and you kind of uh, change the direction again and, and and so the downside of having taken risk is typically super super small um, but the potential upset is big. So it's important to constantly take risks and, and make sure that by taking them, you improve and you develop new things and, and you should not be afraid of the of the potential downside. It, it's not there. Yeah. And, and so the biggest risk is not to take a risk. And I see that many young people, but I'm really surprised that I am the most, let's say aggressive and risk loving guy in the room. Um, and many younger people are very shy and very conservative. and. Uh, yeah, want to make sure that they don't take a risk. So my recommendation clearly is go for risks. And a second maybe is uh, go out and sell. I see a lot of um, people starting companies who have excellent ideas, but who sit most of the time in their office yeah, and kind of build excellent presentations, documents, uh, processes, accounting is working excellently, whatever, no, you need to go out and sell, convince, partners, convince customers, convince suppliers, convince investors And you need to go out for this way. I would say I'm 60, 70% of the time not sitting in, in the office in Berlin, but traveling somewhere can be one of our other offices, but also a lot there, that's why I'm here regularly to meet great talent, to, to meet new people uh, joining us or one of the companies that we are invested in as an angel. Um, you need to be out and, and talk to people, engage with people, not sit in the office and at your desk and, and laptop and kind of work on extra spreadsheets.
0: I'd like to wrap things up by asking you a few questions about you personally, something I do with all of my guests on the podcasts, whether they like it or not. The first one is, what book is on your bedside table? What are you reading right now?
1: It's a book called uh, Factfulness. It's from a Swedish... Uh, Author, he's a professor, and it's about the misperception that many people have about, let's say, global distribution of wealth, of health, and so on. People still believe there is the West and the Rest, and they have uh, hundreds of millions uh, of people living in poverty, or whatever. It's not true. Huh? We're a lot of in Asia, selling a lot of units there, and we see that it's actually not true. And this book is exactly kind of analyzing this in a, in a very much deeper way that there, that there is a huge number of people now globally uh, who actually have a decent standard of living. And the, the, the world has become much better in the last 30, 40 years. But many people still live and that is not true anymore. So that's one book that I'm currently. Uh, that's a good one. You know. listening to. And the second book that I always like to read is The Lonely Planet for whatever country that I'm currently visiting. <laughs> I, have, I have a big pile of lonely planet. Travel guides for the countries that. Are so
0: and what's the what's the next one you'll be visiting? Do you have any any travel plans coming up? I just
1: was actually for six weeks on, on vacation. And we said because everybody who's uh, in the company now since day one. So since six plus years should take six weeks of really time off, no emails. Wow. So I just had this I was in Vietnam. I was in Malaysia. I was in Australia in Dubai and then again in Vietnam. It was a great experience. Wow. Well, so, so I can to play in Australia, Dubai, uh, and Vietnam.
0: I'm seeing a theme there, getting out of the cold in Berlin for, for warmer sure. climbs, right? For sure. <laughs> okay, last question. Is there anything on your playlist that you're willing to share with our listeners?
1: I'm not actively managing it. I'm um, uh, using Spotify, and I like the recommendations they give to me, and then I think they learn and adapt by me clicking next, whether I like it or not that the outcome is pretty good and it depends also on the setup and so i'd rather take the recommendation there awesome
0: i really like that approach i've been trying to incorporate the kind of steve jobs zuckerberg albert einstein had this practice of if you eliminate decisions in your life you get a lot better at making the decisions that you have to make that's why so many of these guys always wore the same clothes albert einstein had a closet full of the same suits. steve jobs always wore you know and this, ah. the whole philosophy behind it is eliminate unnecessary decisions and save your mental energy for the ones that are most important
1: i never heard about this but i can fully relate to this and i i think i follow this principle not knowing marco about vitor. it as well awesome
0: marco vitor thank you so much for joining us today it was a pleasure to chat
1: with you it was my pleasure thanks a lot for this nice conversation awesome thanks mate thank you
0: Well, folks, that was Marco Fitor, co-founder and CEO of Audi Baynet and here.com. Coming soon in episode four, we'll speak with Patrick Fogel, former CFO-COO of the autonomous vehicle mapping company Autonomous GMBH. Since their exit to TomTom in 2017, Patrick now manages TomTom operations in Berlin while pursuing his passion for angel investing. We'll talk startup stories, the complexities of corporate exits, and life in general in Berlin. I think you'll like it. This next to small